Good evening, good day, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show, episode one one five. I hope you are all doing very well. Let us see who all is there with us today, this fine evening. I can see Purobi Nath, Goblet Fire, Crazy Brain, Gunpat, Laksha, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Clash with Pushkar, Abhishek, Mohit, Akhil, Devansh, Yogesh, Akshit, Shambhavi Singh, Pranay, Aditi, Arnavo. Darshan Patel, Anirudh, Siddhant, Sagnik, Komal, Bulldozer Baba, Om, Mohit, Kuldeep, Yogesh, Rajat, Trupti, uh, DJM, and Chiching, Lankesh, please don't spam Lankesh, and Lankrita, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day, all of you. Great to be all back with you all. So as you know, today we discuss... Uh, history geopolitics current affairs so let's get into it with question number 1 and obviously the first question i will take today is about mr shinzo abe the great leader of japan who has been assassinated uh and there's a bunch of questions here who could be behind the shooting china us internal reasons saratobi says comment on the recent assassination uh, what are your thoughts on his duty as a leader of japan how were the ties with india and japan during this time Aditya speaks about Koreans being happy about the assassination. Rahil uh, says about the sorrowful assassination. Do you think the Americans were responsible? The Chinese were happy and celebrated, and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So the question is about uh, the unfortunate, terrible assassination of the leader of Japan, the greatest leader of Japan in recent times, Mr. Shinzo Abe. So, uh, first of all, let me just uh, well. Pay my tribute to the great man. I mean, he was uh, Japan's uh, longest ever serving prime minister. He was young, Japan's youngest ever post-war prime minister, uh, which he became in two thousand six. And uh, uh, yeah, Japan's greatest leader maybe in the past century, certainly after World War Two. And he had at least a decade of uh, active political life left in him. He was. He looked reasonably. He looked perfectly healthy to me, and he was campaigning on behalf of uh, some other politician when this assassination happened. And uh, uh, he was a true patriot, a nationalist, and he was a true friend of India. I mean, I have. I am. I have been saying this for the longest time that there are no friends or enemies in geopolitics and international affairs. But in the case of Mr. Shinzo Abe, that's not true. He was indeed a friend of India, so it's a great loss for Japan, and it's. A great loss for the civilized world and a great loss for India. So, yeah, if anybody from Japan is is watching, we stand with you, the people of India, and we we mourn your leader who has been taken away too early. Right. So the question is, what what is the deal with the assassination of Mr. Abe? Who is behind the shooting? So let's first talk about what the facts are. The facts are that he was assassinated in the day day before yesterday, a couple of days ago. Uh, what we know is that the assassin was a former member of the Jap- Japanese self-defense forces. He served in the navy for a for a short, brief period of time, two three years maybe, and he used a homemade weapon, a homemade double-barreled shotgun kind of thing, uh, to assassinate Mr. Abe. And uh, there are plenty of videos of the assassination f- circulating on social media. If you watch these videos, it becomes very clear that this is a monumental security lapse mr abe was japan's tallest leader 
the longest serving prime minister, the most consequential and important leader in the past uh, 70, 80 years, maybe 100 years. And the kind of security he had was, was terrible. His security people looked bemused when the first shot rang out. If you watch the video videos of the assassination, it's clear that the first shot missed Mr. Abe. It missed the target. And, the, and there were at least two, three seconds before the second shot rang out. And the, the security people, they, they, they failed in their duty. They, 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 I mean, it's, it's criminal negligence what they did. They could have stopped the assassin. They could have uh, taken Mr. Abe to safety in those two or three seconds. Every second counts when it's a, it's a, it's a great leader uh, like Mr. Abe. They failed in their duty. And the second shot, if you, I mean, I would not recommend that people who have a faint heart would watch this, but the second shot hit Mr. Abe. You can see the collar being flicked back on the right side, the right collar. Yeah, so it it hit him somewhere here. I don't think, I mean, is that a fatal injury? Mr. Abe did not collapse. He did not crumple. He, he walked down. He was clearly in pain. He clutched his uh, that part of his body. And then what happened happened and eventually he was declared dead. So this is what we know. And if you, I, I believe the uh, the assassin seems to have said that, uh, so, so he expressed some religious reasons or something for the assassination, which, uh, well, they, they don't quite make any sense, but that's what it is. So these are the facts that we have two days after the assassination. Obviously, they will interrogate the, the individual, the assassin, and uh, his story will come out, whatever the story is. So that's what we know. Now, the question is about uh, the involvement of whether it is internal reasons, whether it is China behind this, whether it's in, whether it's uh, the US behind it, whether the Koreans are behind it. So now, if we want to discuss this, this enters the realm of uh, the realm of speculation. Let me first explain the difference between facts and conspiracy theories. Facts means you speak about the evidence that is available at hand, the hard evidence, the evidence that has been reported and officially reported. Those are the facts. When you make claims, when a person makes claims that are not backed by evidence, those are, that's a conspiracy theory. Now, if you want to uh, talk about whether China is behind this or the Koreans are behind this or the US is behind this, we have absolutely no evidence of any of that. I may have a hunch, but do I have any data or facts that back up my hunch? Not really. And therefore, it is, it is wrong to speculate. This would be just wild speculation. It is possible that there could be an external factor. Mr. Abe certainly did have enemies. Obviously, a man like him, uh, such a such a consequential leader, will have enemies. Somebody who wants to change Japan and who's a nationalist and who wants to take Japan in a certain direction, which other countries won't like. Uh, certainly, China would feel threatened by that, by what Mr. Abe, for the by the vision that Mr. Abe had for Japan. Right? So what did Mr. Abe want? He wanted to remove Article 9 of the Japanese constitution, which outlaws war as a means of settling international disputes. So this article of the Japanese constitution denies Japan's right to belligerency. Right? It says Japan can never go to war. Only diplomacy and other means. Never ever war. And we know who wrote the Japanese constitution. It was the Americans who wrote it in 1945. And the constitution has never been changed after ever since. So Mr. Abe sought a different kind of role for Japan. He believed, he, and he was right in believing that the, the post-World War II era was long gone and a new international order need to be, needed to be created, right? 
so he wanted that but obviously that will cause it it will certainly go against the interests of certain countries the chinese won't like it the koreans who have this long grudge against the japanese and rightfully so because of the actions in world war 2 the, the, the koreans won't like it the south koreans i mean the americans they wrote the constitution they they occupy japan there are more than 100 uh, eminent uh, there are more than 100 american military bases on japanese soil more than 130 possibly yeah so the the americans won't like it so obviously it will ruffle a lot of feathers and it will many people will will see that as a threat but do we have any evidence that any of these countries did that we have no evidence whatsoever none whatsoever so uh so i i am not in a position to answer the question of whether the chinese are behind it or the koreans are behind it or the americans are behind it we have no evidence whatsoever in about this matter right we know who could be threatened by that but we have no evidence so so if i were to start speculating speculating about this then you would be right in calling me a conspiracy theorist but i'm not that so i will not speak about this but let's talk about uh, what uh, the lady asked sana fabi uh the ties with india and japan at the time so yes it is during mr abe's time that the relationship between india and japan essentially blossomed right so mr abe became prime minister for the first time for a year or so in 2006 and i believe he visited india for the first time in 2007 when uh, the upa government was in power and uh, at the time mr abe was already uh, mulling the thought of creating the quadrilateral alliance between india japan australia and the united states because he recognized the fact that the world order was changing the Ch- the chinese rise was already apparent and it needed to be counterbalanced so mr abe at that time itself uh, wanted to create the quadrilateral alliance but at the time the indian government was busy appeasing china in 2006 in 2007 the indian government was busy appeasing china so that did not happen but in 2007 when mr abe first visited india he made it a point to go and visit mr modi in gujarat so he met mr modi and that's where the relationship between these two leaders started and uh, they got along very well they were both uh, fierce patriots they both belonged that their nations needed to rise to the rightful places in history uh, mr abe saw india as a civilizational brother essentially they he saw india as part of the same civilization which it clearly is he spoke about this on many occasions about the very ancient and close and strong civilizational ties between india and japan whether it is buddhism whether it is shinto and all, all of that so he was very clear about this that india and japan are civilizational partners and brothers essentially and uh, yeah so he was a very good friend of mr modi that that friendship evolved over time it became stronger and uh, for the longest time on twitter mr abe followed only three people one was a, a, a japanese journalist one was his wife mrs abe and the third was mr modi and he was following mr modi on twitter before mr since before mr modi became prime minister and after 2014 when mr modi became prime minister the relationship between, between india and japan truly t- took off right so uh, uh what happened is that uh, Multi- many agreements were signed between india and japan lots of close coordination began the bullet train agreement right the smart cities 
collaboration, a significant amount of defense cooperation, especially on the naval front, the International Solar Alliance, and of course, the Quadrilateral Alliance, which is a very big thing now. So Mr. Abe, the Quadrilateral Alliance, the Quad is Mr. Abe's brainchild. It is he who is essentially the initiator of that. And of course, Mr. Abe did multiple reforms within Japan itself. The National Security Council is something that he created in 2013, and it's taken off. So a truly consequential person, a very good friend of India. He truly had warmth in his heart for India. He truly wanted to partner with India and take the two countries forward. And you can see that, you know, when a certain foreign leader comes to your country, you can see whether they are being polite or whether they truly feel it and believe it. So when, for instance, when Mr. Xi Jinping comes to India, you can see that he's going through the motions and he's being polite to his hosts and whatever cultural program is there, he goes and admires the artwork and all that, that sort of thing. But when it came to Mr. Abe, when he visited Varanasi for the, for the Ganga Aarti, you could see he actually felt that. He was not acting. He was not being polite. He actually felt that emotion, right? So that's why I said that Mr. Abe is one of the rare people who I would say was a genuine friend of India. And therefore, it is a big loss for India that uh, Mr. Abe has been assassinated. It's a big loss, obviously, for the people of Japan and for the for the civilized world, I would say. So uh, that is what I can say about this matter. I will not indulge in empty speculation. I obviously have a hunch about who may be behind this. But I don't have any evidence to back it up and therefore I shall keep quiet about that. Okay, this is an old question one year ago from Akash Bullar. But uh, considering the situation right now, maybe it's an appropriate time to look at, to, to take this up. So the question is, do you think Lee Harvey Oswald really killed President John F. Kennedy of the US? The former Raw Chief Vikram Sood, in his book, claimed that he was assassinated by the CIA because he was trying to shake hands with the Soviets at the time. He was soft on the Soviets. What do you think? And related to this, what is the deep state? Okay. So let's... Uh, so, Mr. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. 1963 was a strange year. It was a year in which two world leaders were assassinated. One was Mr. Kennedy... And the other was Prime Minister Lal Bahadur Shastri. These two, these two assassinations happened. I mean, uh, Mr. Shastri, obviously, we don't know whether he was assassinated or not, but he died under mysterious circumstances. And the uh, the death has never been fully explained. And uh, uh, I have a I have a podcast with uh, Mr. Anujdar on this channel in which we he speaks about this. He's the subject matter expert. He's written a book about this. So if that's what interests you, you can take a look at this podcast or or read his book. So the other major event was the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and uh, the official report is that he was killed by a lone gunman, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who was himself assassinated by by a guy called Ruby, I think Jack Ruby, John Ruby, something like that a few days later. So he was silenced forever. Lee Harvey Oswald. The assassin himself was assassinated in, film, in, in full public view, live on TV. That's what happened. Uh, it's a very murky, strange case. And the official uh, explanation of the assassination, the Warren uh, Commission report, is that there was a lone gunman. So let me just show you what it looks like. Shall we take a look at this? The Warren Commission, the Warren Commission report. Let me share that. So it's available in the public domain. 
this is what it looks like. You could look it up and, and Google it and find it. This is what the Warren Commission report looks like. The entire uh, report is available in the public domain, including uh, the assassination, the summary and conclusions. There's even an autopsy report that's available. If, if that's something that you would be interested in, the autopsy report and so on. So this is the Warren Commission report, and that's the official version of what happened. What does it say? It says that President Kennedy was assassinated by a lone gunman who fired multiple shots from behind. So the assassination happened in the city of Dallas. The, the president and his wife and the governor of Texas were in an open car, an open top car. There was no covering. It, it was open. And they were driving down, down the road, and then these shots rang out. And uh, and this entire assassination was captured on tape, on film. It's called the Zapruder film, the Zapruder tape or whatever it's called. It's I'm sure it's available in the public domain. I suppose it's available on YouTube as well. Fair warning, it's not a pleasant thing to see. The president's head essentially explodes. It's it's a very graphic tape. So if, if, if you get upset easily, don't watch it. But... The official report says that there was a lone gunman who shot the president from behind, from a building on the whatever 7th, 8th, ninth floor, something like that, from a significant distance using a sniper rifle, multiple shots. At least two bullets hit the president, according to the official uh, report. And uh, the fatal shot was in the head from behind. That's what the official version says till today. Now, if you, are, uh, are, uh, if you were to watch the tape, the actual film of the assassination, then you see something totally different. You see that the president's head is, is, is jerked backwards very violently and it essentially explodes. There is this entire big spray of brain matter that happens. So it's clear that the bullet came from the front. The, a bullet is a very... It's a very uh, energetic projectile. It imparts a massive amount of, of uh, kinetic energy to the target. It's like getting a massive punch in the face, but from a very little piece of metal. And that's why it, it destroys whatever it, it hits. And therefore, when a bullet hits a human being, a body or whatever, there's a massive uh, uh, whiplash in the opposite direction. To opposite to the place from where the bullet came. So you can see in the film that the president's head is jerked backwards and, the, and it explodes at the same time. So it's clear the bullet, the fatal bullet was fired from the front, not from the back. Anybody can see this. Even a five-year-old can understand where the bullet came from. And yet the official version says that he was shot from behind, from, from building. So it makes no sense. And obviously this has been discussed threadbare. This is a big deal in the US. Even today people are fascinated with this. Uh, Oliver Stone, one of in, uh, one of America's most uh, respected filmmakers, has uh, done a great deal of work in this. He uh, he uh, released a movie in 1991, which was a fictional movie, JFK, which was a movie with actors. It was acting, and there was uh, this fictional character and all that, played by uh, Kevin Costner, other people as well. I believe uh, the guy who played Dracula played the role of Lee Harvey Oswald, yeah, and and so on, right? So that was a movie in which it is claimed that uh, this was a big cover-up. It was uh, something done by the American deep state itself. And then there is a 
newer documentary by uh, Oliver Stone. It's called JFK Revisited, I believe. It's from last year, I think, in which he goes into more detail about with with more of the research that he has done over the years. And if you look at if you watch these documentaries, they, they make a very compelling case that Lee Harvey Oswald was not behind this; it was somebody else. Um, but well, you talk about this, they will call you a conspiracy theorist. So nowadays they call Oliver Stone a conspiracy theorist, even though he has a lot of data to back up his claims. And it's clear from watching the film of the the tapes of the assassination that he the the fatal shot did not come from behind; it came from the front. So it's clear that there is a cover up from the part of the United States government. So yeah, so I would agree with uh, Mr. Vic. I, I I mean I have not read the book. Uh, the one that you're referring to, the one by Mr. Vikram Sood, but he is a very well-respected person. He was India's former uh, head of the research and analysis wing. So if he says something, we have to take it very seriously. So if, if this is what he claimed, then it, one must take it seriously. Yeah. And what is the deep state? The deep state is the unelected, uh, well, it is once again alleged to exist. See, officially in the US, you have a president who is the head of the nation, who is the person who makes takes all the deci- decisions and who is the so-called leader of the free world or whatever they call it, right? That's the claim they make. The deep state is the Pentagon, the, the military industrial complex, the people who are never elected or, or taken or removed from power. They are always there. Whoever, the, who's the, whoever is the president, it doesn't matter. These are the people who actually run the machinery of the governance and of the, of the government. Essentially, the Pentagon and uh, the CIA, FBI, all of that, that's what is called the deep state. This is not a conspiracy theory. I mean, there's plenty written about this, lots of books about that and so on. So that is what is meant by the deep state, the unelected machinery of governance in the US, which essentially dictates foreign policy, internal policy and uh, things like that. So that is the answer to this question in, in brief, reasonably brief. All right, let's talk about what else is happening in the world. Ishwara Moody says, can you please give us a gist of what's happening right now in Sri Lanka? What will be India's next step, even after we have provided so much aid already? And Kinchuk says, the last member of the Rajapaksha family left Sri Lanka on Saturday. What do you think about it? And how does it impact India? Right, so what's happening in Sri Lanka? Sri Lanka is in a, is in a big big mess, right? So the Rajapaksas who have been ruling the country essentially for the past uh, 15 or so years, maybe longer, they are the most powerful family in politics, in Sri Lankan politics. It's a dynasty. It's like three brothers and the children and who else? I don't know. It's an extended family that essentially holds much of the, was holding much of the power in Sri Lanka. So they have now left. They have escaped from the country. Uh, these videos came up on social media of the Rajapaksas uh, escaping, uh, running, essentially running with big suitcases and, and uh, going on this uh, Sri Lankan Navy ship to escape the country. And more footage has emerged on social media of the presidential palace being invaded by crowds of common citizens, protesters, right? And people uh, swimming in the presidential swimming pool and uh, whatnot. So that's what's happened. The Sri Lankan go- the, the country is right now without a government. There is no leader. There may be a titular leader, a leader who is by title president or prime minister or whatever, but actually there is no government in Sri Lanka now. It's it's a mumbocracy. 
that is where we are today the so called leaders have escaped from the country they have fled and the the economy is ruined uh, there there is no more fuel in the country maybe there's a food crisis what not the country has been totally ruined so that is what's happening right now and the minister of external affairs in india has uh, has put out a statement today let me see what it looks like let me see what the statement is let me put it up let me put up the twitter account of the ministry of external affairs india let's see what we have to say about this what the indian government has to say uh yes so this is the statement it says that uh, it's it's in response to various media queries about the situation uh, so the official statement from our external affairs ministry is that india is sri lanka's closest neighbor and the two countries share deep civilizational bonds we are aware of the many challenges that sri lanka indians people have been facing and we have stood with the sri lankan people as they have tried to overcome this difficult period in pursuance with the of the central place that sri lanka occupies in our neighborhood first policy india has extended this year itself an unprecedented support of over 3.8 billion us dollars for ameliorating the serious economic situation in sri lanka we continue to follow closely this recent developments in sri lanka india stands with the people of sri lanka as they seek to realize their aspirations for prosperity and progress through democratic means and values established institutions and constitutional framework so this is a very uh, diplomatic statement obviously we will have to use terms words like uh, democracy and uh, democratic means and values and establish new institutions and constitutional framework and all that so that is the situation in sri lanka now what exactly has happened there i mean a lot of indian geopolitical commentators are blaming everything on china i agree that the chinese have uh, played this uh, the, their uh, their usual trick of the uh, checkbook diplomacy the debt trap diplomacy and they have managed to acquire the hambantota port in the south of the country on a 99 year lease and all that but i i would disagree with those who say that the chinese are responsible for the complete devastation of the of the sri lankan economy that is not true lots of people in india are saying this very very uh, prominent commentators and all that the chinese are not entirely responsible for the for the complete disaster that the sri lankan economy has become here's the truth over the last half century the imf the international monetary fund has given sri lanka 16 loans 16 loans not one not two not three not five not 10 16 loans big loans sizable massive loans now the imf or the world bank these two institutions are essentially you could say arms of the west mm, they are extensions of western foreign policy essentially us foreign policy and the when the imf gives you a loan that loan has a number of conditions attached to it you don't get to use the money in any way you want they will tell you how to use the money so the first thing i mean for india for instance india in 1991 92 was going bankrupt the government had uh, ruined the economy and india was forced to open up its economy in exchange for imf and world bank assistance so the condition was that india will open up its economy india will become slowly a free market economy and it will allow 
uh, Western companies to in, enter India and do business and so on and so forth, right? So similarly for Sri Lanka, a n- large number of so-called liberal reforms or neoliberal reforms were imposed as conditions as part of these loans. And these are essentially the key causes of the current crisis in Sri Lanka. And once again, they, they ruined the agricultural sector as well. There is this Indian lady called Vandana Shiva, who uh, who essentially advised the Sri Lankan government to give up all uh, uh, to to be to go into organic farming. No more uh, pesticides. No more uh, fertilizers. You know, chemical fertilizers. Go completely organic. That ruined the agricultural sector of Sri Lanka. That's why there are there are so many protests happening in the Netherlands right now. Because the Netherlands government is trying to impose those sort of conditions on their own farmers. And that's why there is this massive, the entire country is essentially paralyzed right now. But the Sri Lankan government took this whole, they swallowed this wholesale and they, they ruined their entire agricultural sector, which is why now they are in this food crisis, they have to import food from other countries. India has been providing a significant amount of assistance. So I would say, yes, the Chinese, do, they did play their role, but the major role, the key role was played by the IMF and their interference in Sri Lanka's internal affairs. So right now the Sri Lanka, the, the country is in, is in crisis. I don't know what is the way forward. India obviously will monitor this, monitor this situation closely. If things go really bad, India will have to deal with the refugee crisis because where else will they go? Where else will the Sri Lankans go? They, they will have to come to India for, for refuge if, if things are really bad in the country. So it is not something that India would want. We don't want, uh, it is not in India's interest to, to absorb lots of refugees if such a situation were to arise. So India needs to monitor the situation very carefully. And uh, yeah, I would not make any recommendations as to what the uh, future course of action should be. But yeah, we need to monitor this carefully and take the right steps at the right time in order to help the people of Sri Lanka. Okay, Kostub says... What's the current status quo in the Russian Russia-Ukraine conflict? When will the war completely end? Will there be any peace treaty signed between Ukraine and Russia? As sanctions are backfiring on the West, record high inflation in Europe and the US. The ruble is the strongest performing currency despite so many sanctions and diplomatic isolation. Yes, your observations are correct. There is record inflation in Europe. There is terrible inflation in the US. Uh, petrol prices, prices, gasoline prices are, are have crossed ten dollars, which is incredible. It's it's a time for great hardship. It's a time of great hard, great hardship in the U.S. in Western Europe. And Russia, the Russian currency is, is extremely strong right now. It's way stronger than it, it was at the beginning of the war in February, right? February twenty four is the day the war of war officially started. The West imposed a. a bucket load of sanctions this through through the entire kitchen sink at the russian economy and yet the russian ruble emerged out of it for very simple reasons the russians pegged the ruble to to gold they have a sizable amount of gold reserves and they pegged the price of the ruble to the to to the price of gold very simple and they demanded they are the major supplier of of gas to europe Europe depends on Russia for their energy security, for their for their heating and all that. Europe is a cold place. They need that. So the Russians demanded that all payments for gas be done in Russian rubles. So there's a demand for rubles and the ruble automatically becomes valuable and its price rises. 
so the ruble is currently the one of the most uh, the, one of the strongest performing currencies in the world right now and all the sanctions uh, have backfired obviously there will be some some effect but uh, clearly the russians planned for this they anticipated everything the west would do everything the west would throw at them and they are doing well this has been something they have planned for a long time very clearly very clearly so uh what's the status quo the status quo is that the donbas region is in russian control uh much of southern ukraine is in russian control uh, essentially russia is in control of a quarter approximately one fourth of ukraine which is a territory that is at least as large as bangladesh or pakistan that's how it is that's a that's a massive territorial gain right now the military uh, obviously there's a war going on and it's proceeding there is no time constraint or time pressure on russia the if there were if their economy was crumbling then there would be a massive time constraint and time pressure on russia they would have to finish what they set out to finish in a certain amount of time as quickly as possible but there is no time pressure on russia so they are taking the time and they will achieve their objectives at their own pace so what are the objectives uh, obviously they want to reintegrate the the russian speaking russian majority regions into russian territory maybe they will create independent republics initially and after 10 20 years they will absorb them into russia something like that and they want to ensure that the uh, the nazi elements of ukrainian society are are essentially neutralized in some way or the other uh, so that's where we are the the fighting is going on Uh, the russians are using old school tactics in ukraine it's not a high tech war it's not like a war that fought that's fought with drones and all that yeah drones are being used by the russians uh but the fighting is more or less old old school old style so the russians are fighting at a distance they are not fighting face to face with the ukrainians the ukrainians have massive army first of all understand that the ukrainian armed forces number more than 50 60 di- divisions uh they have their army is greater than the entire armed forces of western europe combined that's how big the ukrainian army is or was and they have significant amount of reserves as well it's a very very powerful military a very large military and uh uh they also have a very strong industrial base technological base they possibly could have the ability to even create nuclear weapons possibly they may have it so that's so that's the situation so the russians are confronting a very big a very big army but they are dealing with it and the ukrainians have no uh they don't really have any response to what the russians are doing and there is no way the west can get can, can get involved there is no way nato can get involved the russians have not even thrown 10% of their uh, of their air force into this they still have a massive amount of reserves left behind it's just about 10% of the russian uh, armed forces that are currently involved in the fighting so that's where we are eventually i i would expect that the entirety of the black sea coast will be annexed by russia uh, of course we have we have we have to take a look at the map how can i talk about this without the map so please uh, give me a second let me bring in the map where is the map here's the map Where's the map? Here it is. So, sorry, yeah, all right. So uh, here is Ukraine, and the entire eastern part of Ukraine, the Luhansk, Donetsk region, is gone. Sevastopol, Crimea, is already gone. 
and uh, eventually i would expect the russians would want to take mikolaev and odessa as well so the entire black sea coast will eventually most likely be under russian control there's nobody who can stop this the russians will do it at their own pace and uh, i would expect that eventually even ukraine would either be taken over by russia or a puppet government would be installed there and the country would essentially be partitioned there would be a rump state which is western ukraine which would be left behind and it would be essentially powerless and it would be something that would never be allowed to enter nato and ever be a threat to russia again so the long term objectives remain the same and uh, that is what's going to have happen eventually so it's a long drawn out war it's not a very hot war very fast paced war but the russians are very clear about what their objectives are they want to ensure that this part of the world is never a threat for them again and that's what they are going towards they will uh, neutralize the ukrainian armed forces and uh, long term look it looks like they will partition the country and install a puppet government in the part of the country that they are interested in that's what could happen and it is what all the other nations are currently looking at this with great interest especially the various militaries in the world are watching this with great interest because we are witnessing new forms of warfare are drones effective in this war well not very much what are the tactics that work people have been saying that the russian tanks don't work the russian tanks are doing just fine yeah obviously you will have some losses and all that but what tactics are succeeding what what tactics are not working so all that is being currently very keenly observed by the entire world and the lessons will be taken forward in future conflicts in this decade i hope there's no conflict but human history tells you otherwise our history tells us otherwise so in future conflicts these lessons will be applied so that's what's happening okay man vashishtha says in one of your podcasts with ranveer alabadia you said that the main reason why russia defeated nazi germany was due to their massive numbers of reserve personnel but then why was russia not able to defeat a small country like finland during the winter war of 1939 40 Okay yeah I did say that uh, Russia was able to defeat Nazi Germany in Operation Barbarossa 1941 41 most likely 41 because of their massive numbers of of uh, reserve personnel they threw incredible numbers of russian soldiers into this meat grinder horrible they were able to defend the country at the cost of oceans of blood it was terrible but it worked eventually they took berlin yeah so that's what they did and that is indeed the case now what about finland let's take a look at the map once again same part of the world so what happened in finland why did russia go to war with finland so in 1939 1940 during the second world war there was this brief winter war 3 4 months around 3 months between russia and finland and the russian object see the, the reason why this war happened the russians initiated the war it happened in this region and the russians were worried that this great city sankt petersburg st petersburg which was then known as leningrad it was too close to the finland border and it could possibly be threatened by uh through from across the border from from finland the the border was different at the time it was much closer to the city of st petersburg and the russians saw it as a very major threat 
that maybe uh, a hostile power could use the the territory of finland to to launch an attack on saint petersburg and to preclude that they proactively went to war with finland that's what happened the war lasted about uh, about 3 months roughly look it up the exact dates it's about 3 months as far as i to the best of my uh, recollection now at the end of the war the russians gained about the finland finland lost about 10% of its territory so it is not correct to say that the, the russians uh, lost the war what, what is being said here that uh, russia was not able to defeat a small country like finland the russians achieved their objectives and they exceeded their objectives they acquired more territory from finland than they wanted to they exceeded their objectives the current finland russia border is a reflection of what happened during that war it is true that the russians suffered far more casualties than finland i think the russian army lost five times as many soldiers as the finland army so yes that was not a very good performance uh, they did not do well the army obviously did not do a good job but they did eventually achieve their objectives and surpass the objectives but the the consequence of this is that the the army didn't clearly did not do a very good job they lost so many people and that encouraged adolf hitler to eventually in 1941 launch operation barbarossa aimed at conquering russia so the performance of the russian army the ussr army in this war uh, was not good so so hitler was encouraged by that at that time russia and germany the ussr and germany had a an agreement the molotov ribbentrop pact so this pact was about essentially about non aggression and about dividing up poland so they both agreed that they would take roughly half of half of poland and as soon as the germans invaded poland the soviets also invaded poland from the east and they divided up poland and this agreement lasted until 1941 when adolf hitler gave up his attacks on england temporarily and turned his direction eastwards to the ussr eventually it was a disastrous move and it culminated in the uh defeat of germany defeat of nazi germany so uh, to answer your question it is not correct to say that russia was not able to defeat this finland they defeated finland they achieved and exceeded their objectives for the war but yes they they lost way more soldiers than the finns did because the finns understood their terrain much better than the russians and they were prepared for such an invasion and eventuality so so the objective of the of the ussr was not to take over the entirety of finland it was to ensure that there was more territory available and and that um, more territory was taken into russia and that any potential threat to saint petersburg was neutralized so that was the objective and they achieved the objective okay srijit says in 1914 the sms emden bombed madras harbor it's now chennai it was then known as madras is it true that an indian revolutionary in berlin champakaraman pillai was the mastermind behind this what was his hitler's view on british rule in india are there any instances where he helped indian revolutionaries okay so let's take once again a look at the facts what actually happened for that we have to go back to the to the map here's the map so now we know where madras 
the erstwhile city of Madras was. It's now called Chennai. It's here in southern India of the Bay of Bengal, the, the great uh, Kalinga Mahasagar. So this uh, uh, this 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 ship, the SMS Emden, was uh, originally harbored. It, it, it was uh, birthed at the port of Qingdao in China. Qingdao used to be a German-occupied territory at the time. China was under, uh, various parts of China were under European occupation. So Qingdao, the city of Qingdao, the port city of Qingdao was, it was then called Qingdao, I think, Qingdao or something like that. It was at that time in under the possession of Germany. And the Germans had a number of uh, naval warships in this port. So the SMS Emden was a German light cruiser or medium cruiser, one of these two things. So it's a medium-sized battleship, right? So when the First World War broke out in 1914, uh, eventually what happened is that uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, grabbed various German possessions in the Pacific Ocean. The Germans were in control of various islands in this region. The Marshall Islands was one of them, I believe, and so on. In the South Pacific region, the Australians and the New Zealanders, they took over these islands and Germany lost those possessions. So uh, the Germans, what they did was they they launched this ship took off from, from Tsingtao. The captain of the ship was Karl von Müller and he essentially waged a three, four month lone battle all across this region. So let me take you, where, let me show you where this happened. One second. Uh, the, the, the voyage of the of the SMS Emden and the various engagements it took. So take a look at this. So this essentially is the long convoluted route that this ship took and it uh, engaged lots of targets. It sunk some, some vessels. On September 23, 1914, it, it bombed the port city of Madras. It uh, did it saw some action off the coast of Burma. It was in the Maldives and the Lakshadweep Islands, the Chagos Arch Archipelago. And eventually, in November 2014, it, it uh, was destroyed. It, it was run aground in the Cocos and Keeling Islands. That's what happened, right? So on September 23, this ship bombed the port city of Madras. It, it set fire to uh, the oil tanks over there. And uh, yeah, so that is what happened. These are, these are the facts that we have at our disposal. So what we know is that this ship was in Tsingtao in 1914. And uh, over a course of three, four months, it so all this action, it was eventually destroyed. Now, the captain of the ship was uh, Karl von Müller. When the ship was destroyed in the Cocos and Keeling Islands, the, the so sailors who were injured were taken to Australia. The sailors who were not injured were taken, I believe, to Malta. And these people were eventually repatriated to Germany in 1920. In 1920, right? Now, we know that uh, Mr. Champakaraman Pillai was present in Berlin in 1914. He was in Berlin in 1914. If he had been on the SMS Emden, he would have been in Tsingtao in 1914. And he would have, whoever, he would have not been able to re return to Berlin until most likely 1920. Right? So it is clear from these facts 
the best evidence that we have at our hands that it doesn't appear like uh, Champakraman Pillai was on that ship. And if he was not on the ship, then uh, how would he mastermind this entire operation? The mastermind behind this entire operation was the captain of the ship, Carl von Müller. That was the mastermind. And uh, he, he would not need the presence of Champakraman Pillai to get the idea of bombing Madras and uh, showing the people of India that the British could be defeated. So that's what I can tell about you, uh, about this matter. I have seen no evidence whatsoever that Champakraman Pillai was on the ship or was the master behind, behind the operation. Right? I, I know that uh, some people have claimed, I believe his family has claimed that he may have been behind this, but maybe it, it's possible. I'm not saying it's completely impossible, but the evidence for this doesn't exist. So that's what I can say. What was Hitler's view about British rule in India? You know, Hitler actually had a good opinion about the British. He kind of admired the British. Uh, but of course, they went to war against each other. So he sought to defeat them. Uh, and what was his view about British rule in India? Well, your enemy's enemy is my friend. And that's why he, he uh, received uh, Subhash Chandra Bose warmly. And then he recommended him to go to Japan and carry the operation forward. So obviously... Hitler would have been happy if the British rule in India would have ended at the time. So that is the situation. Are there any instances where he helped Indian revolutionaries? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I only know about the interaction between uh, Hitler and Mr. Bose. And uh, he received Mr. Bose warmly and uh, he hosted him in, in Germany uh, during the length of Mr. Bose's stay there. And eventually he recommended to Mr. Bose to go to Japan and take up action, I mean, take up the cause of Indian independence from, from that staging base. So that's eventually what happened. And that's what we know about it. Okay, Kinshuk says, you said in a previous episode that the USA and the USSR got their, acquired their rocket technology from, with the help of German scientists. They acquired it from Nazi Germany, essentially. Yeah. So my question is, where did the Germans get this technology from? Please answer. Okay, so at the end of World War II, a large number of German space, I mean, rockets, scientists and engineers, including Werner von Braun, were captured and taken prisoner by the Americans. And they were then brought to the US. They were brought to the US and it was their expertise. And they, the Americans also captured some of the... Uh, some of the German ballistic missiles, the V-2 ballistic missiles. The Germans are the pioneers of not only cruise missile technology, but also ballistic missile technology. Nobody had built these kinds of missiles before. So the Americans acquired at least one V-2 missile, if not more. They brought it to the US and the rocket was tested from there. And it was all of this that gave rise to the U.S. space program. This was called Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip. So it was German technology, German scientific and engineering expertise that built the U.S. space program and built NASA, essentially. Werner von Braun was eventually the head of NASA. He was, for a very long time, a prisoner, essentially, in, in the U.S., but uh, he rose to become the head of NASA and he was the man, he was the brain behind the Saturn V rocket, which took Neil Armstrong and other people to, to the moon. So yes, the Americans acquired all of their rocket technology from the Germans. The Russians, they took, they captured 
whatever other scientists, German scientists they could, they brought them to Russia. And that is what gave rise to the Russian space program, right? Yuri Gagarin was the first human being in space and so on and so forth. So yes, the Americans and the Russians, the USSR, the Soviets, they acquired their rocket technology from the from the Germans. They did not have their own technology. And the Chinese acquired their rocket technology from the Russians. So that also has its origin in Germany. So the question is, where did the Germans get this technology from? Well, the obvious answer is, come on, it's aliens, don't you think? <laughs> okay, to be, um, yeah, it's not aliens. Look, the Germans developed the technology on their own. That's what they did. Um, see, in 1971, Germany was born as a nation. It was unified from various, uh, what you could say, uh, various kingdoms, essentially, by the great uh, chancellor, Bismarck. And Bismarck was the true power in Germany, even though there was a uh, king, the Kaiser. Uh, the Kaiser came second, his father was there and so on. So the true power, the true uh, power in Germany was Otto von Bismarck. And Bismarck instituted a number of far-reaching reforms in Germany after 1971. He reformed the industry. Germany overnight, within the span of a decade, become, became the major industrial power in Europe. It became the engine that drove Europe and the European economy. It became the most powerful economy in Europe. They developed a massive technologically advanced industrial base. They, they built very good universities. Their scientific education was the, the best of the entire world, most likely. And that is why all the, all the uh, breakthroughs in physics happened from Germany, the initial breakthroughs, whether it is the discovery of the quantum nature of the world, Max Planck, whether it is uh, relativity, Albert Einstein, and further development of quantum theory, all of that happened in Germany because they had the best education system, they had the best technological base, they had the best researchers, and if you were good, you were promoted. There was no, there was complete meritocracy, there was no nepotism, all that. So that's why the best minds were attracted towards Germany, and there was this flowering. Of, of technology and science in Germany. And that is what gave rise to the German space program, the missile program, the cruise missiles, uh, the ballistic missiles, all of that. And of course, the, the incredible aircraft, fighter aircraft that the, that the Germans uh, developed over the years. They also developed the first jet aircraft, the jet fighter, the Germans. And uh, if you look at World War II, some of the best fighter planes and other planes were German planes. The, the Stukas, the Messerschmitts, the focke Wolfes, and, and so many more, the Henkels, bombers, and so much more. So the Germans acquired this technology by developing it themselves. Nobody gifted the technology to them. It's not like some aliens came and said, hi, my German friends, take this technology. It's not like that. They developed the technology from scratch. Like India did later. India, uh, nobody gifted India rocket technology. ISRO, the scientists at ISRO developed the technology from scratch. So did the Japanese scientists. Nobody helped them. They developed their rocket technology from scratch. So Germany developed its rocket technology from scratch. So did India. So did Japan. The Americans just acquired the German technology and built upon that. So did the Soviets. So did the Chinese. I hope that answers your question, my good friend.
Okay, two questions by Atharva. Why do UK prime ministers not last long? In India, chief ministers and prime ministers complete their full term mostly. But in the UK, this doesn't happen. Is it because of intra-party democracy, which is absent in Indian parties? The second, second question is, in the UK, how much power does the crown hold? Is it more powerful than the, than the prime minister's office? Do bureaucrats run the country? Okay, so you have compared the situation in the UK with India. You know, in the 1990s, Indian prime ministers came and went like a merry-go-round. The Indian uh, parliamentary system is, is, is a copy of the UK system, the Westminster system. It's an inherently unstable system. You had so many prime ministers who were there for two months, three months, five months, whatever, four months in the 1990s in India. Uh, who comes to my mind? H.D. Deve Gowda, I.K. Gujral, Chandrasekhar. Then the Vajpayee government came and fell in, in a couple of weeks. It is an inherently unstable system. It's only now that you have a prime minister that everybody wants to vote for, and that's why he, he sweeps the elections. But it, the Indian parliamentary system is inherently unstable. You need somebody like Mr. Modi. If you don't have somebody like that, then you will have coalition governments which are inherently weak, full of infighting, and they, they, they can collapse at any time. So that is the situation that you see in the UK right now. So the question is, why do UK PMs not last? It's because the system is inherently unstable. The UK parliamentary system has evolved slowly, essentially, over the course of the past 1,000 years. It all began with the Magna Carta, the great charter of, of yeah, the great charter, right? The Magna Carta, which, which gave rights to people and to various things like that. You can go into that and Google, Google it. It begins with the Doomsday Book, the Magna Carta, reforms instituted, instituted by William the Conqueror, who conquered, who was the last foreign invader to successfully conquer England in the year 1066. It starts from his reforms. Eventually, uh, a parliament was constituted so a few centuries later, uh, there were there were depositions of kings under Cromwell, I believe, not the first Cromwell, the second Cromwell, his great uncle, his, his great nephew, or something, and so on. It's a long story. It's uh, so. The question really is that if you have a have a country in which you have such an inherently unstable system of governance the, the the prime minister can't typically doesn't last long then then how is such a country able to survive so i think this system is designed to be unstable because the true power always had to reside with the with the crown and the the royalty the kings and queens of england did not want other people to become too powerful that's why the, the, the system was designed that way, that it would never be too powerful. Nobody would have too much power. Nobody would stay in power too long. Even if they stayed in power, there were checks and balances. The House of Lords is an unelected body. It's not an elected body, the upper house of parliament. It's the Lords. Nowadays, they don't have much power. But in the past, they did have a lot of power. They could veto any act or any, any legislation that the lower uh, the House of Commons would pass. In the past, right? And uh, the bureaucracy obviously has a huge amount of power. The unelected bureaucracy in England, in the UK. Uh, the attitude of the bureaucracy is that prime ministers come and go, but we are there forever. And they can, if they wish, stifle any uh, policy measures that the prime minister may institute. 
They may simply make it, make these measures or policy measures ineffective if they want. So the real question is who controls the bureaucracy? So it's a very opaque, obscure system. We don't really know where the real power lies. Uh, the official uh, stand is that the uh, monarchy in England, the crown, is just a figurehead, a titular position. It doesn't have any power uh, and so on. That's what is claimed, but we don't quite know what the situation is. Clearly, the prime ministers don't have much power. Prime ministers come and go. In such an unstable system, there's nothing a prime minister can, uh, a prime minister can do for too long. I mean, the latest example is Mr. Johnson, Boris Johnson, who was there for a while. Before him, it was uh, that lady whose name I forget. I mean, these people, they come and go. You don't even remember the names. The last, I mean, there was this guy called Brown um, and so on. So people have come and go. They keep coming and going just like in Japan. In Japan also, apart from Mr. Shinzo Abe, the prime minister just come and go, come and go. You don't even remember the names. I remember a few names like Nomuru Takeshita, uh, Yasu, Yasuhiro Nakasone. Juichiro Koizumi. Two, three names I remember. The others are all anonymous. And similarly, it's the same for England, for, for the UK. So clear, see, here's the thing about the world. There is something called official positions and there's something that's unofficial or undeclared. There are extra-democratic, extra-governmental, extra-constitutional power networks and power centers in every country in the world. In every nation in the world, there are power networks and power centers that are un, that are extra constitutional, extra democratic, and extra governmental. Right? To understand what these are, you have to understand what is the true nature of power, which is a whole different topic, which you can't explain in five minutes. So you have to understand that properly. And when you understand that, it becomes very clear that many of these so-called positions, like prime ministers actually, etc., they don't really hold too much real power. In the UK, the Prime Minister is a ceremonial position, essentially. Essentially. And the Prime Minister's actual function is to, is to distract the public attention from where the real power lies. In the words of one of their own writers, who wrote about something else, but it's very apt in this, in this case. Right? So the Prime Minister's job is to distract attention from where the true power lies. And Mr. Boris Johnson did a great job of that. He was very entertaining. Very, very entertaining. I mean, no, you may agree or disagree with his policies, but he was fun to watch. So that's how it is. The Crown may still hold a lot of power. The bureaucrats certainly hold more power than the government, than, 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 the, than the Prime Minister, and so on. But where does the real power lie? That's quite, that's kind of not very visible. It's kind of opaque, obscure, the way it has been designed to be. Okay, Anish says, is there any chance at all of us, which means India, getting the permanent seat in the UN Security Council anymore? Because I feel other than Russia and France, no one will be in favor of us being the sixth member. Even if the US and the UK are, China will never be. So in which scenario can India get a permanent seat in the UN Security Council? Or is it just a dream or a wish that will never be fulfilled? And at the current status, power and influence that India has, do we truly deserve it right now? Okay. UN Security Council. So as we know, so what is the United Nations? To understand all of this, you have to understand what is the United Nations and the United Nations Security Council. 
the United Nations was born. It was it was formed in 1945, I think, if I don't, if I recall correctly, at the fag end of World War Two. So it was formed, it was constituted before World War II ended, but when the writing on the wall was already visible. The Germans were about to lose, they were doing very badly, and the Japanese would soon follow suit. So the United Nations was created, and membership was given to all those who would declare war on Germany and Japan. So suddenly, a whole lot of countries across the world declared war officially on Germany. And Japan also, I suppose. These were just verbal declarations. It did not mean that they are there to actually send soldiers. But you do that, then you get a membership in the United Nations. So it was a club of those who won. And the United the UN Security Council is another body which has a number of members. But the core group, the five members, the five permanent members, were the actual victors of World War II, the allies. The United States, the UK... France, who's the fourth one? The USSR. Yes, these are the four victorious powers. And the fifth one, they were wondering whom they should give it to. And they wanted to give it to India. And there's a whole story there. The the Chinese were also involved in that. But uh, not the Communist Party, the the other one. You know, Uh, it's a whole story there. You can look it up. So they wanted to give this seat to India. And Mr. Nehru, as we know, as is established as is very well documented by multiple sources he refused multiple times 1950 he refused 1953 he refused 1955 also he refused and eventually it was given to china right so today today india wants it but today nobody wants to give it to india the chinese have a veto they have this a very powerful position well to some extent it's powerful and they don't want india to be elevated to the status of an equal to them. And of course, India is currently not an equal to China. India is certainly, India. the Indian economy has exceeded that of France and the UK for sure, as far as I remember. But India's economy is still much smaller than that of China or the US. And Russia has inherited the seat of the USSR. So there is that is the situation right now. And none of these people would want to relinquish their power or to or to dilute the power by bringing in new members. So some of these nations may verbally say that we are in favor of, of uh, adding India to this, but it won't happen most likely. So do we truly deserve it? If the if the UK deserves it, if France deserve it, deserves it, so does India. So we certainly would be deserving, considering that the UK and the France and, and France are part of it. But is this just a dream or a wish that will never be fulfilled? If India does rise, if India does rise to a $10 trillion economy or more than that, we want more than that, then it may happen. But before that, the UN will have to be reconstituted properly. The UN is an obsolete body. It's an obsolete organization. It is a remnant of the post-World War II era. That's what it is. So it, it is a snapshot in time of the, the situation in the post-World War II era. It is obsolete. Today the world has changed. So maybe in this decade or in the next decade, the world order will totally be reorganized. One hopes it happens through peaceful means. One does not want warfare. But who knows? Eventually, the world order will change. Like officially. And then maybe a new UN will be constituted. And this this entire business will be disbanded 
if that's that sort of thing happens india will certainly uh, rise to this sort of position like being a permanent member on whatever new security council or whatever it is that is formed at that time but as of today there is no chance of india getting in so don't hope for the sort of thing for the next 5 to 10 years at least india has to rise first to a significant uh, position in world affairs okay the idk says how did how were princely states how did princely states okay how did princely states rule in british india were the kings just titles like today or did they have some actual political power in the respective uh, geographical areas right uh, good question i think i may have spoken about this before but let's take it up again so the british took absolute control of india in 1857 1857 was the war of independence much of india rose up against british occupation and there was a time when things were in balance but eventually the british were able to prevail and they whoever fought the british the various so called uh, kingdoms in india who fought against the british they were all defeated and they, those lineages were ended then what the british did is that the, there was such a massive country to govern a massive landmass the entire indian subcontinent from present day pakistan all the way to burma it is difficult to rule such a massive subcontinent without uh without putting on a, putting on a certain kind of show so what they did was they destroyed all of these families all of the all of the royal families that had fought against them and then they installed puppets in their place and some of these royal families made compromises with the british and they agreed to serve the british after 1857 every single royal family served the british how what does it mean all of these kingdoms were then given the name of princely states by the british in each of these princely states there was a british political officer a british political officer who would tell the local prince or whatever it was what sort of policies they must implement the rules or the laws that were in power that that were enforced were british rules or laws eventually the whole legal system was created by the british which we which is still followed in india so the, these princely states the rulers were essentially agents of the british they were puppets of the british they collected taxes there there would be a british collector also a collector of money even today in india there is a, a position of district collector my question is what does the district collector collect today what does he collect or she collect why is that person still called a collector why can't you call him or her a district administrator or district magistrate they have not even changed the name of the title district collector so all of these princely states they would have a collector who was essentially an extortionist these kings and queens whoever it was would extract taxes from the population from their population from the from the people on behalf of the british hand it over to the so called collector who would then and it would be used to enrich the east india company and eventually the british raj there would also be a political agent who would ensure that the british policies were followed by these rulers so essentially these rulers were nothing but puppets 
Some of them actively and happily collaborated with the British. Some of them were undeserving people who were put in, in power as puppets after the British killed off the actual kings and queens. Many such puppets were put in power. I will not name them because it will offend some people. And some of these royal families made a compromise in order to serve their people somehow. One of the major examples that comes to my mind is the Travancore royal family. The Travancore royal family was also a princely state and they also were essentially under the thumbs of the British. And yet they did the people and the, and the country great service. They never allowed the British to know that the great Shri Padmanabha Swami temple has an incredibly enormous treasure within. If the British knew about this, they would have looted everything. The treasure still exists. It is still there in the vaults of the Shri Padmanabha Swami temple. Its value is estimated to be in excess of $1 trillion. Not rupees, dollars. Some, some geniuses are going to come and come in the comments and say, no, it's rupees, not dollars. No, it is estimated to be in excess of $1 trillion in value. And some of the vaults have not even been opened yet. And this, these, these, this treasure that's in this temple goes back thousands of years. Yeah. So the Travancore royal family never allowed the British to come to know, to find out that there's this massive treasure in the temple. And so that is a great thing they did. So many of these royal families were actually trying their best to serve their people. They were not all traitors. They were not all collaborators. collaborators. But some of these so-called princely states and their royal families were puppets installed by the British and they were totally completely beholden to the British for their power and position. Not power, but the position and prestige. And they were true servants of the British. So some served the people, some served the British, that's how it was. But they, none of them had any actual power. None of them had any actual power. They were simply agents of the British in a variety of ways. That is the truth. After 1857, all of the royal families, all of the princely states were nothing but British puppets. And that's the truth. Okay, Rinnegan says, what is the origin of the Metes? Are they invaders from China who did atrocities on the Bishnu Priyas? It's written everywhere on the, in, on the internet that they invaded Manipur around 350 years ago. Or is it propaganda against the Mete people, just like the Aryan invasion myth? Okay, first of all, to the viewers who may not know, who are the Meite people? The Meite people are the people of Manipur. Where is Manipur? I, I suppose many people would not know where it is. So let us go to the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. Let's go to the map and take a look at where Manipur is, in case some of you don't know. Manipur is in the far east of India. It is to the south of what is now called Nagaland and to the north of Mizoram. Can you see Manipur written here? Manipur is to the west of Burma, Mar. The capital of Manipur is Imphal. So this is now a state in India. It was once one of the great uh, princely kingdoms, one of the great kingdoms in India. And the question is that has been asked is uh, what is the origin of the Metis? The Metis are the people of Manipur. Uh, they, they follow two religions. The origin religion is called Sanamahism. Everything is an ism nowadays in English, but the worship of the great god Sanamahi and the pantheon of gods around that. And later on, um, during the time of the, the king, uh, one of the kings, uh, uh, um, Vaishnavism became the official uh, state uh, state religion, so to say, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which was brought into, into Manipur by this individual called Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. 
right so about uh, 3 or 4 centuries ago vaishnavism became a big deal in manipur eventually most people of manipur practiced a syncretic version of syncretic mixture of sanamahism and gaudiya vaishnavism very similar to the situation that you have in japan where most people a century ago practiced shinto as well as buddhism shinto is the original uh culture religion whatever you want to call it of 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 uh, japan buddhism came in about 1500 years ago from via china so shinto is the original writers of the original authors who wrote about shinto in japan they essentially said that shinto is like japanese hinduism and buddhism is like a simplified version of that so that's a different story so the meites are the people of manipur they are the ones who practice anamahism and gaudiya vaishnavism either or or both and the question is what is the origin of the meite people are they invaders from china who did atrocities on the vishnupuriya manipuris or is it propaganda i have never <laughs> read anywhere that the vishnupuri the meites did atrocities against the vishnupuriyas and they invaded from china 30 years ago the royal chronicle of of manipur of the of the kings of manipur is called the chaitharol kumbaba it is a detailed chronology of the entire uh, lineage of the ningtojam dynasty it dates back to about 2000 years before today in one version and in the other version it dates back to 3500 years before today so it's clear that the meide people have been in manipur most likely for at least 3 and a half thousand years so this 350 years ago i don't know what that is who who comes up with these ridiculous stories the meites are the true inhabitants and the true natives of the people of of the of, of manipur and they have been there for thousands of years so i don't know what what stories uh, are nowadays being propagated but there is no such thing who are the bishnupriyas so about about roughly 200 years ago there was this seven years of devastation of manipur the burmese invaded manipur and assam and they did, they essentially tried to wipe out the manipuri people the meite people they essentially indulged in genocide the burmese against manipur so lots of manipuris escaped from manipur some of them went into assam some of them went into bengal uh, many of them uh, live in places like silet in bangladesh today which was then part of india part uh, it was it was part of bengal um, many of these people manipuris meites they escaped into other places like tripura assam etc and eventually these people came to be known as vishnupriya manipuris right so that's what it is there is i don't know where who comes up with these ridiculous claims that the meites did atrocities on the vishnupriya manipuris that's nonsense okay so uh, the origin of the meites before 3 and 1/2000 years i i don't know i think we would need to do genetic uh, research to go to the bottom of that i'm not sure that has been done but the meites have most likely been in manipur for at least 3 and 1/2000 years so <laughs> so these stories are totally completely false and total propaganda the reformer says kung fu is a chinese martial art which has an indian origin okay you said it reached china along with the buddhists how come a religion that is all about peace and non violence spread a fighting style this is one of the great myths that prevalent that is prevalent about indian culture that india the indian culture is all about non violence and never fighting back and all that here's how 
I've spoken about this in the past. I'll speak about it again today. Here is how Kung Fu reached China. Uh, about 1600 or so years ago, uh, look up the exact details on the website of the Shaolin Temple. Okay. So about 1600 or so years ago, roughly, uh, there, is, there, is a, there is a time when Buddhism was uh, and Indian culture was being becoming very popular in China. It started with the Kushan era. The great emperor of India, Kanishka, is the one who started it all. He started sending, not uh, along with the trade delega delegations to China, he started sending scholars, Vedic scholars, Buddhist scholars, etc. And that's how Indian culture started entering China. And the Chinese were intrigued and they really liked it. And then what happened is that many Chinese kings started sending ambassadors to India, requesting Indian rulers to send more scholars with, uh, with uh, who could translate Sanskrit texts into Chinese. So lots of Indian scholars went there. Now about, like I said, about 1600 years or so ago, one of the Indian scholars who went there was called Buddha Bhadra. He went to this place, to this region in China. The local king built a, a, a temple, a monastery for this Indian guru called Buddha Bhadra, where he could stay in peace and translate all the various Sanskrit sutras into Chinese. Buddha, Buddha Bhadra died after a few years and in replacement, a new monk went there who was called Bodhidharma. He is most likely somebody who went from southern India, most likely. We not quite sure, but most likely he was from southern India. Bodhidharma reaches this place and he finds that this place is in a forested region and lots of bandits, they raid the place from time to time. They beat up the monks and steal all the provisions. So Bodhidharma, what he did is, he said, we will do all the all the culture stuff later. First, let me teach you how to defend yourself. Defend yourselves. So he taught these Chinese monks the an ancient Indian art of self-defense, which was based on based in yoga. So it was an ancient martial art of India based in yoga that he taught the, to the Chinese. And it eventually came to be known as Kung Fu. This was the Shaolin temple, the Shaolin monastery. Bodhi Dharma is the first patriarch of the Shaolin temple. Right? And if you go to the Shaolin temple today, on, on a hill which overlooks the temple, there is a giant statue of this great Indian teacher, Bodhidharma, who not only taught Dhyan to the Chinese, but he also taught Kung Fu. And he taught this Indian uh, version, Indian form of meditation called Dhyana meditation to the, to the Chinese. And the Chinese eventually spread it to Japan, further east. And the Chinese called Dhyana Chan. And the Japanese, they eventually ended up calling it Zen. So Zen Buddhism, Zen meditation, it called, all came from India. So that is the story of the origin of Kung Fu. It, it, it originates in India. The original martial art, art is lost. India has lost it. But the Chinese have developed it further. They call it Kung Fu. So it originates from India. The question is, how come a religion all about peace and nonviolence spread a fighting style? So the highest, uh, the highest principle in all dharmic belief systems, in, in, in dharma itself, is non-violence, ahinsa, ahinsa paramo dharma. That is the highest value in all forms of dharma, all flavors of dharma, whether it is Jaina dharma or Bodh dharma or various other forms of, uh, of what we call Hindu dharma, right? Ahinsa is always the paramo dharma. It doesn't mean that when somebody comes and beats you up, you're going to sit idle and let that happen. What did Lord Krishna say? Have you ever read the Bhagavad Gita? 
is is dharma about just uh, passive non violence and passive resistance no the other aspect of dharma is that you must destroy adharma by any means necessary even if you have to break the rules that is what lord krishna taught and lord krishna came a long time before gautam buddha and buddhism is nothing but one of the flavors of dharma both the dharma the dhamma whatever right and so that's what it is and that's why bodhidharma even though he was a great guru who supposedly taught buddhism he also taught them how to defend themselves because if you don't defend defend yourself you are breaking dharma you are doing adharma by allowing adharma to win you are also supporting adharma that's how it is so that's why buddhism many buddhist kings were great warriors come on we all know that the the majapahit empire in indonesia which was a hindu empire was a, a was a great thalassocratic empire the champar empire in in cambodia in vietnam was a great maritime empire and so on and so forth look at the japanese buddhist traditions you had shinto which is the original uh, culture religion which is more like hinduism than buddhism yeah and then you have buddhism which appears in japan about 1500 or so years ago it becomes very very prevalent the two traditions syncretize beautifully yeah and the japanese warriors the japanese warlords the shoguns were buddhists the japanese warrior class you could call them the japanese kshatriyas the samurais were buddhists they were proper practicing buddhists they had this code of honor called bushido it's about how a warrior should conduct themselves it's about honor it's about uh, it's about uh, yeah it's about all that and it is very much part of bodh dharma it is rooted in bodh dharma in buddhism so it is completely incorrect to say that buddhism and in and dharma overall is about peace and non violence we value peace and non violence we want peace and non violence it doesn't mean we're going to tolerate violence you don't tolerate violence you don't tolerate adharma you have to destroy adharma what does kali say the mother goddess in hinduism is is a very benevolent person whether it is saraswati or lakshmi or durga or whatever but she has the rudra roop right what does kali do what does chamunda do <laughs> so think about that both the dharma buddhism is nothing but a flavor of hinduism there is no real difference the the west does it best does its best to emphasize minute differences minute differences but the similarities which are 99.9% of the whole thing are ignored and that's why people are brainwashed into believing that buddhism and hinduism are different and they have different concepts and different uh, values and so on which is not the case okay so that's about this question okay aj raul says after watching the top gun movie i'm really surprised as how a f14 jet can take on not one but three fifth generation fighter jets which appeared to be the sukhoi sukhoi 57 uh, can this really be possible also in this aspect what kind of jet jets can the lca tejas combat combat effectively now this is a very good question first of all great movie i watched it uh, a while ago uh, maybe a month or so ago the new top gun movie uh, it's the first movie that came out of hollywood in a long long time that i enjoyed it had no stupid messaging moralizing mo- morally you know that woke morality and all the nonsense it was just a clean movie with good entertainment and, and a reasonably good story 
it was enjoyable i liked it which i was very surprised by right so in this movie they, they, you have this guy maverick tom cruise who flies an f14 fighter jet and takes out what yeah maybe two or three aircraft that look like sukhoi 57s which is a fifth generation aircraft so is it possible so let's understand what, what these generations are the first generation of fighter aircraft was the world war 2 fighter aircraft the um whatever was being was in use that at that time the mustang the the, the spitfire i believe and and so on the messer schmitz stukas and so on i may i may have got some of them wrong but the, the world war two aircraft were called the first generation fighter aircraft then you had the second generation fighter aircraft which were jet engine fighters the mig 21 is a second generation fighter aircraft yeah and it's still in use in some countries that you may know of the third generation fighter aircraft are planes like the mig 23 fourth generation fighters are the f16s the f14s the one that you are mentioning here and so on then there is something called the 4.5 generation of fighter aircraft aircraft which includes the mig 35 the lca tejas the jf 17 and also the the rafale the french aircraft so that's a 4.5 generation aircraft and the tejas is classified as a 4.5 generation aircraft and then you have the latest most advanced fighter aircraft which are called the fifth generation fighter planes the first of those was the f22 the lockheed martin f22 then you also have the f35 the sukhoi f57 and the j20 of china so these are fifth generation fighter planes so now the question is can a f f14 which is a fourth generation fighter take on and defeat a fifth generation fighter like the S, like the sukhoi 57 no it can't the sukhoi 57 will not come anywhere near a fourth generation fighter plane it will destroy it from 100 kilometers away and the f14 will not even know what happened that's how advanced a fifth generation fighter plane is the f14 stands no chance whatsoever against a fifth generation fighter aircraft unless you're in very specific terrain etc even then it's it's hard to imagine that because uh because fifth generation fighter aircraft have certain systems like and they have beyond visual range missiles and so much more that they don't need to come anywhere near another fighter plane and engage in a dogfight or whatever it's not necessary they can destroy an f14 from like 50 or 100 kilometers far far away So yeah that was a leap of imagination that was a suspension of disbelief in the movie that an F14 can take out three Sukhoi 57s which is like eh, impossible right the other question is what kind of jets can the LCA Tejas combat effectively it can combat fourth generation fighter planes and and and, and older fighter planes the LCA Tejas would be a reasonably good match for uh, for a MiG 35 an f14 and an f16 a mig 21 mig 23 etc maybe it could even fight a rafale take possibly or or definitely a jf17 which the pakistanis nowadays employ so that's the kind of fighter plane the lca tejas can take on and defeat it would be a stretch of imagination to to imagine that the tejas could defeat a fifth generation fighter and yet it it may be possible if you have sufficient numbers and so on but alone a single 
fourth generation aircraft can certainly not take out a fifth generation fighter plane. Yeah. So yeah, so that is the situation. That's where we are. Okay, Ashutosh says, can India, will India be able to, will India be able to make the advanced medium combat aircraft in this decade? So what is the AMCA? It's the advanced medium combat aircraft. It is, I believe, going to be a fifth generation fighter plane with stealth elements. So one of the uh, features of a fifth generation fighter plane is it has stealth features. It has a very low radar cross section. The F-22, F-35, etc. also have this feature. The J-20 doesn't quite do a good job at hiding itself, but from behind, it's it's quite visible and so on. From certain angles, it may be able to give offer a low cross-section. So the AMCA is what is currently being, de being designed in India. It's going to be the next generation of fighter aircraft. Uh, the first prototype test flight is expected to be in 2024-25 around that time period. And I am reasonably confident that they will be able to uh, to make this time frame. They will be able to do it in this time frame, the first test flight. And why am I confident? It's because now DRDO and Hindustan Aeronautics Limited, etc. have a lot of expertise and experience through a lot of painful trial and error of building a 4.5 generation aircraft, which is the LCA Tejas, and the Mark 1 and the Mark 2 and various variants of that. Right? So they now know how to do it. Once you do it successfully on one occasion, you can then take it forward and it's much easier to design a better aircraft, which is based on the previous one. So I think it should be not that difficult now to take it forward and design and build of, of, of the first flying prototype of the AMCA in the next two, three years, by 24 or 25. And then they will build, they will test it out. They will see what are the def deficiencies, where are the areas of improvement. They will make a second prototype, maybe a third one. And once the final design is locked, in, the final design is locked in after testing everything out, then the aircraft will most likely enter production by 2030. So I... I'm pretty positive, I'm pretty confident that India will be able to achieve this time frame, will be able to successfully produce the aircraft and, and bring it into serial production by 2030. I'm pretty confident about that. Okay, Spywolf9 says, F-18 Super Hornet or Dassault Rafale, which one is the best for the Indian Navy considering India's trustworthy relations with France? And uh, did we induct more American arms in our ammunition? Okay, I will answer the first part of the question. Which aircraft should India go for? So right now, India needs a number of uh, fighter planes for its uh, new aircraft carrier. I don't know what's the number India is seeking, maybe 30, 40, something like that. And there are a number of candidates in the fray. Uh, there was supposed to be a, a naval version of the Tejas aircraft, but, but the Navy did not go for that. So now that in, in the future, there could be a twin engine deck based fighter, a TEDBF, which will be an advanced version of, of the Tejas, something to something similar to the AMCA that also is in the, in the, is, is maybe something could be in the pipeline, right? The AMCA. But right now we need a number of aircraft to fill the gap temporarily, maybe 20, 30 aircraft, whatever the number is, you can look it up. And two of the best candidates are the F-18, which is an American fighter plane, a twin engine fighter plane, and the Rafale, which is a French fighter plane. Both of these uh, 
uh, can land and take off from aircraft carriers. The F-18 Super Hornet seems to have an advantage that you can fold its wings. The Rafale may not have that feature, does not have that feature. So what is the best bet for India? What should India go for? The thing is this, you acquire the F-18, it's one more aircraft in your zoo. You can't have 500 different aircraft in your zoo. You have to keep things simple. If you acquire one more uh, model of aircraft, one more species of aircraft, then you need another source of spare parts and things like that. It it uh, introduces more complications in your life and in your in your in your armed forces. Ideally, you don't want more than three or four different kinds of aircraft. If you keep on buying different kinds of planes from different places, it it, it messes things up. It makes the, your life very complex. So I would say we already have the Rafale. We're already using it. We have a reasonable amount of expertise. Our fighters, our, our, our pilots know how to fly it. Our engineers know how to service it. I think one should go, India should go with the Rafale and not with the F-18. I know the Americans won't like it, but I think the French are way more trustworthy. We have a long uh, uh, track record of cooperation and strategic cooperation and partnership with the French. Uh, we have acquired a number of submarines from them. We have acquired, uh, we are on the on the verge of acquiring 36 Rafales from them. So I think it would be best for India to stick with the Rafale, which is a good aircraft, very good aircraft, proven aircraft, and and use that for the for the stop as a stopgap solution for our naval naval requirements. So I would say we, we should go for the Rafale. Abhishek says, Pranam, this is my fourth attempt. All right. I live in Siliguri, West Bengal. A few years back, the Doklam crisis scared us all here. What will happen if China decides to bomb Siliguri? Why is the government not doing anything to secure Siliguri? Okay, where is Siliguri? Let's go to the map. Where is Siliguri? The Siliguri corridor is also known as the chicken's neck. So here we have India. Then we have the far east of India. And the small narrow piece of land that connects the two is called the Siliguri Corridor, the so-called chicken's neck. Right? It's about 50 kilometers wide. And uh, yeah, the Chinese obviously will keep an eye on this. They, In, in case of a war be between India and China, the Chinese may want to cut it off, to, to take, it, take it out so that they can uh, bifurcate India and cut off the northeast from the rest of the country. So that's a, that's a, essentially a, a weak point in India's geography. And the question is, why is the government not doing anything to secure Siliguri? And you are somebody who lives there. So it's like this. Just because you don't see lots of soldiers in Siliguri doesn't mean that the government is doing nothing to secure Siliguri. You don't need to put 50,000 soldiers in Siliguri to secure Siliguri. You don't need to do that. How would one... How would India deal with an, with a Chinese attempt to, let's say, take over Siliguri, attack Siliguri, bomb Siliguri, whatever? India would deal with it using air power and missile power. The Chinese attempt to intrude into Indian territory will come from Tibet. They will have their bases there. We have our eyes on our bases, on these bases. We have birds in the sky, satellites in position. We know everything that's going on there. We don't talk about it, obviously. I mean, one must assume that one has these capabilities. Uh, 
the Chinese know that. So we know what the Chinese are up to. We are keeping a very close watch on all Chinese activities north of, I mean, in the Tibet area. So if there is any misadventure for the Chinese in Siliguri, it will come from Tibet. If that happens, India will use air power to defeat that. You don't need to put 50,000 or 100,000 soldiers in Siliguri itself. You destroy the Chinese bases using cruise missiles, Brahmos, or using fighter aircraft. You give them a bloody nose so that it forces them to pull back. And we have air power in the region. You may not see it. It may not be visible. It is not designed to be visible, but it's there. We have missile power in the region. Once again, you're not supposed to see it. Nobody is supposed to see it, but it is there. So I don't know what the media may be saying. It may be making people feel insecure or whatever. But Siliguri is not in any danger. If the Chinese try anything, they're going to get more than a bloody nose. So uh, I would I would say don't be scared. Rest assured, India has the situation under, under control. Uh, if the Chinese try anything, they will they will learn a very bitter lesson. Okay, Swarup Vaidya says, what is the I2U2 group? Is it a new alliance like the Quad? What are its objectives, and what is India doing? Uh, what is India going to benefit from it? Hmm, the I2U2 group. What is that? So the I2U2 group is a coalition or, or a grouping of four nations. Two nations whose names start with I and two nations whose names start with U. India, Israel, the UAE and the USA. So let's take a look at what the geography is like. Where are these nations? We know where India is. I hope you do. Where is the UAE? It's not really far from India. Here it is. Dubai is part of the UAE. Right, <clears throat> so it's in the Persian Gulf region. That's the UAE. Uh, Israel is a Eastern Mediterranean nation. It's over here, right? West of Jordan, west of Saudi Arabia, north of Egypt, and I suppose you know where the US is. So it is a new coalition or a new grouping of nations, uh, which happened quite recently. So in 2020. You had the Abraham Accords between Israel and the, and the, and the UAE, essentially. And it, it marked a thawing, a, a, an improvement of relations between Israel and these Gulf countries. Even the Saudis now have reasonably good relations with Israel. So this was done under the presidency of Mr. Trump, right, in 2020. So as a consequence of the Abraham Accord, following the Abraham Accords, this new grouping was formed in 2021, I2U2. India, Israel, UAE, and the USA. Now, this grouping of nations will have a number of stated objectives and a number of unstated objectives. I am obviously more interested in the unstated objectives. The stated objectives are cooperation and collaboration in things like food security, in various technologies, in trade, in climate change, in fighting against pandemics like COVID-19. And obviously about exploring the security cooperation for mutual benefit and so on and so forth. These are the official stated objectives. What are the unstated objectives is what I would really be interested in. And obviously unstated objectives are not stated. So one has to deduce what these objectives are. So when it comes to India and Israel, it's very clear what our mutual uh, we have a very strong mutual, mutually beneficial relationship. We our national interests align. There is long-term alignment. We have common adversaries, we have common interests, uh, 
there is a lot of positivity and warmth between the, between the two nations. There is a lot we can do to help each other from the trade perspective, from the economic perspective, from the strategic perspective, from the defense perspective, and so much cooperation and collaboration has been happening between India and Israel. So that is a natural partnership, India-Israel. India and UAE, there is a lot of, uh, a great amount of warmth between India and the, and the UAE of late, since 2014, after Mr. Modi came to power. So the Sheikh of, of the UAE, what's his name? I forget his name. It's, a, it's an Arabic name. Forgive me because, because because I can't remember it right now. So, uh, Mr. Modi and the leader of the UAE have a very good relationship, and uh, India has excellent relations with all the all these Gulf countries, including Saudi Arabia, Oman, and the UAE. So Oman, uh, the, so the UAE fits into that very nicely. No issues there. So India has good relations with Israel. India has good relations with Saudi Arabia, with the UAE, and with the US. We have. A convergence of of strategic uh, interests vis-a-vis China. The U.S. obviously regards China's rise as a big threat, and obviously it is also a big threat for India. So, what are the objectives of the I2U2? Uh, so, one of the objectives is energy security from India. So, India India seeks multipolarity in the world. The U.S. seeks bipolarity. The Chinese desire unipolarity. India desires multipolarity. So this sort of grouping uh, goes well with our envisioned idea of multipolarity in the world. We will work with everybody with whom we have uh, shared interests. Uh, So that's what it is. Obviously, there will be some uh, strategic and geopolitical angle to it. For instance, keeping China out of this region, that could be... uh, one of the objectives that are unstated from the Indian perspective and the U.S. perspective, the the Arabs, the the Emiratis, etc., would not really mind China too much, but they would also prefer India because everyone knows what China's track record is like. So that is what this thing is. It is a very new organization. It may not even have very clear objectives right now, but in the long run, it is good for India because we seek good relations with all the nations in this region with Israel, with the Gulf nations, and it's it's good for us. So that's what it is. It's a new form, it's a new grouping. Uh, just like the Quad, it's kind of in, informal. Just like the SCO, Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization, it has informal, it's kind of an informal thing. With it, I'm not sure if it has stated objectives in the, in the charter, but that's where we are. It's a new grouping. It will take time for it to mature and evolve and, and uh, have clear-cut objectives that are stated. Right. Okay, Man Vashishta says, what would have happened if Gamal Abdel Nasser had been successful in uniting the Islamic nations of North Africa and the Middle East? It is known that this was his biggest aim to incorporate all the Islamic nations into a single Islamic superpower. superpower. So Mr. Nasser ruled Egypt from 1956 until 1970 when he died. Yeah. And yes, he was a pan-Africanist, pan-Africanist. He was a pan-Arabist. He wanted a a unified Arabic uh, power. So he he was part of this uh, this, uh, experiment called the United Arab Republic from 1958 to 1960-61, which was uh, a unified nation of Egypt and Syria, which is weird because they are not quite connected. Take a look at the map. Take a look at the map. Where is Egypt? Misr. Egypt is here. 
and Syria is all over the, all the way up north. So Egypt and Syria were part of a single republic, the United Arab Rep Republic, between 1958 and 1961, I believe, right? So they did take part in this in, in this uh, experiment. Did not last very long, but he sought this sort of thing. He sought uh, he sought a pan Arab coalition and maybe a pan Arab nation and eventually maybe a pan African nation. And uh, it was Nasser who, in in coordination and cooperation with various African leaders, uh, created something called the Organization of African Unity. In the early 1960s, it lasted until the early 21st century. I think it dissolved in 20, 2002 and gave rise to a new organization called the African Union, which came into, into force in 2002. So Mr. Nasser was kind of behind all of this. He was very much involved in this. He was also involved in the so-called non-alignment movement, which took anybody nowhere, but that's what it was. So yeah, uh, the Egyptians see him as one of the one of the major Egyptian leaders. They 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 like him very much. He's a very well cherished and beloved leader of Egypt, mostly because of his involvement in the 1956 attempt to invade Egypt and take over Suez, which was done by the French and the British. It was Britain's last attempt at uh, regaining its its status as a world power. They did succeed in taking over the Suez region, Suez Canal region, briefly before the Americans arm-twisted them into giving it up. And that's so that's what happened. So Mr. Nasser would have been deposed had this uh, this invasion been allowed to progress to its logical conclusion. But the Americans intervened, which saved Nasser. And out of all of this, Nasser emerged as a great hero, even though he did not do much, but still he emerged as a hero. And he was a very uh, domineering personality and very charismatic person. So that's why he is regarded as one of the greatest uh, Egyptian leaders of the past hundred or so years. And he did seek to unify the Arab nations and possibly even Africa. And obviously it did not happen because Africa is still very much colonized by the Western powers. It's still very much colonized in a variety of ways. Uh, yeah, so that's what it is. So it's impossible it would have been impossible for him to unify africa it's it's just it's just too big of a task africa is so huge it's immense it's an immense geography it looks kind of small on the map because the mercantile projection doesn't quite do justice to the size of africa and yet africa is is just immense enormous it's it's very difficult to unify all the nations into a single organization and even gaddafi Muammar Gaddafi, the leader of Libya, had such, uh, had such plans. He sought a, un a single African currency backed by the gold standard. And we know what happened to him. So the West will not allow this to happen. They will not allow Africa to unite. Right? So that's, yeah, didn't happen, didn't work. Okay, let's take a couple of questions more. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, what according to you is the determinant factor in success? Luck or effort or both? So if you look at the most successful people in the world, they would not have been that successful was it not for a certain element of luck. Luck is important. But you can never be lucky unless you put in an immense amount of hard work. Yeah. So effort comes first. If you put in 100% of your effort, then the gods may smile upon you and give you the 2% of luck, which will take you to the next level. 
so yes luck is important but luck is you will never have luck if you just sit and keep praying to the gods you have to work so effort comes first then the 2% of luck may come in if the gods decide that you are worthy of it so 98% effort maybe 1 or 2% luck that is the determinant factor in success uh apratim says i am determined to start a podcast can you give me some guidance regarding it and how can i invite you uh, to my podcast when it expands to a respectable size uh, look you want to start a podcast you need to have a topic you need to have some kind of uh, plan you can't just say i want to have a podcast because it's great you need to have a reason for having a podcast you need to have a one year plan at least as to how many episodes you want and what are the episodes going to be about and what is the topic going to be about right so that has to be there without that your podcast won't won't work and you it has to and, and whatever topic you choose has to be something that resonates with you it's something that you should be passionate about right otherwise you will not be able to sustain that over a long period of time uh, i believe the statistics say that most most podcasts end after 3 episodes right that sort of thing they don't last long because people give up it's too hard and they don't they run out of ideas and all that so first of all you need to determine why you want to have a podcast is it something that really drives you and do you have the expertise in whatever topic you you want to speak about which would allow you to sustain it for a long period of time or maybe you want to be an interviewer and call interesting people well you should ask yourself in that case why should interesting people come and speak to you on your podcast there should be something unique about you that would tell them that it's worth their time so you have to think about all these things you need to have a very clear idea of why you're doing it you need to have a very clear idea of what topics you want to make the podcast about and you need to have a clear plan the equipment and all that is not very important you don't need expensive equipment and you know, all that you can use reasonably inexpensive equipment to start off with so yeah and how can you invite me to, to to your podcast well you have to demonstrate that that you're worth it right you need to show that you you are serious about what you're doing and how do you demonstrate you're serious by having a track record by having 30 40 50 episodes if you do that if you put in the hard work people will come the first thing people will want to see is are you serious i get emails every single day i get dozens of emails every day i get messages on instagram i get messages on twitter i get messages on linkedin people requesting me to come on their podcast i take a look at their channel it's got it's got like one video or two videos <laughs> i have nothing against small channels and small youtubers or small podcasters but you have to show that you are serious right everybody's time is valuable is it is it worth one hour of my time is it going to be valuable for whatever audience is going to watch it so you have to make it worthwhile so these are some of the things i could offer to you and uh, all the best i hope that you get your plan in place and i and i wish you success all right all the best karan says uh, how to overcome addiction F- phone phone addiction <laughs> okay see any addiction is it it yeah see i believe addiction is something that is a psychological reaction to f- trying to try to fill some hole in your life um and uh, and when you don't get what you want in your life you try to uh 
try to fill that hole with some sort of activity which takes the form of an addiction some people do substance abuse alcohol addiction or or various kinds of uh, other substances chemical chemical substances drugs whatever some people get uh, get uh, addicted to social media like you say phone or whatever it is and so on and so forth there are all kinds of addictions that people have typically this would be this would, this means that there is something missing in your life and you're trying to fill that hole by by through this addiction so you have to go to the root of why you are addicted to whatever it is that you're addicted right why are you addicted to it and then you identify what it is and you to fill that hole with what what really needs what, what really needs to be there and i would say that uh, to to overcome an addiction you should replace it with something better maybe replace it with a better addiction maybe give up your phone addiction and replace it with a gym addiction go to the gym an hour every day you know you know and and uh, use the time you are spending on the phone to do that or or learn some new hobby or or do some extra work or whatever it is so at the end of the day the only person who can help you is yourself and it will take will power there is no shortcut to these things you have to go through that barrier and it takes a lot of will power to to overcome any kind of addiction so that is what i can say in brief i am not an expert i'm not a counselor but that's what that's the insight i could offer you so all the best andrea says what about mosquitoes even if we are not killing by hand we use medicines so they die anyways so this is in response to that uh, somebody had asked me about should should we kill ants or something like that and i said please don't kill ants what about mosquitoes well go ahead and kill mosquitoes it's okay to kill mosquitoes there are lots of dangerous creatures in the world sharks tigers lions elephants crocodiles but the animal that kills the most human beings every year is the mosquito it's a it's the mosquito it's the it's a deadly it is the most dangerous predator that humans have and it looks so small and harmless but it kills people through various diseases malaria obviously they have dengue then you have uh, various other uh, illnesses that that mosquitoes uh, transmit so yes go ahead kill mosquitoes you know i always say that i am against gene editing and uh, you know all, all genetically modified organisms gmos etc but i would not be opposed to cross breeding or or i would not be opposed to introducing firefly genes into mosquitoes and making mosquitoes glow so even in the dark you can see the mosquitoes flying around so you can kill them easily so yes it's okay go ahead kill the mosquitoes all the best all right we are almost at the end of today's session i will take a couple of questions from the live chat if you have any would you do you have any questions if you have questions for me go ahead and ask me right now i will take a couple of questions uh something that intrigues me please something that's interesting uh something i've not answered before jay shri ram ji uh, jay shri ram sir ji yes sir jay shri ram mm. mosquitoes are creatures created by angramanyu ahriman it is entirely possible it's entirely possible that ahriman created mosquitoes because obviously he's he's the bad guy isn't he what about what about the shinzo abe killing 
have I not answered this today? <laughs> okay. Um, why are there no volcanoes around India? Because India does not lie in it in a very techno tectonically active region. There are tectonically active zones in India, but the uh, volcanoes typically exist where the tectonic plates collide, where there are subduction zones, etc. The so-called ring of fire. So that's thankfully away from India. There is one, one or two volcanoes in India, in the Andaman Islands. One is Barren Island. Uh, Barren Island and the other uh, one is Narokandam, I believe. Let me show you where it is. Where is Barren Island? It's somewhere in the Andamans. I believe it is this one, is it? Barren Island. So if you look here, you will see that there's a volcano there. It's 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 kind of dormant, but sometimes it wakes up, this island. And there is another volcano called Narakundam or something nearby in, in this general region. So yeah, so there are one or two volcanoes, two volcanoes most likely in India, and that's it. And we are th very thankful that we don't have any more because it's never fun to be near a volcano. Like, like in various cities in Japan and Italy and so on. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I guess I guess we are done for today. Yeah, we are, we have crossed two hours. So thank you very much for all your questions. Always a great pleasure interacting with you all, answering your questions. Let's keep it going. Would you like me to do a Q&A session, ask Abhijit session on Twitter? Would you like that? Uh, I could do something like that next week, perhaps as a, as, a, as a test, as an experiment. If some of you are on Twitter, I could answer questions on that. So let me know in the comments below. But until then, until next time, until the next episode, thank you very much. Take care and I will see you soon. Bye-bye.